Well, let's begin our time by reading God's Word. John 18, 28 through 40. John 28, John 18, 28 through 40. I was talking to Bob this week and he was sharing with me how a little, little, bit of, little bit sad that we're ending our study in the Gospel of John. It's been a wonderful journey thus far. And it's been so sweet to our souls, so sweet to our faith. Somewhat sad to know that we have but just a few weeks left in this wonderful gospel. But as we come near the end, it is um, getting more and more intense because with every verse, we're nearing the cross of Christ, our Lord's death on the cross. Verse 28, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Today is part two of a continuation of last week's sermon, A Tale of Two Kingdoms, the Kingdom of the World versus the Kingdom of Jesus Christ. These two kingdoms are on a collision course, two distinct kingdoms, separate kingdoms with separate groups of people. Time of impact, again, was 2,000 years ago. The point of impact is the city of Jerusalem, more specifically, 
the Roman governor's palace, Pontius Pilate's palace. Last week I said there's nine differences between these two kingdoms. Well, I've edited it out. There are now seven differences between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We'll review the first four rather quickly, for we spent much time in them last week. And then we'll finish with the last three differences. The first difference between these two kingdoms is that the rulers of the earthly kingdom are sinners. The rulers of the earthly kingdom, the world's kingdom, are sinners. Hope we know by now that pure and righteous rulers and kings exist only in fairy tales. This knight in shining armor, this noble prince who is pure, righteous, exists only in, um, in, a, in fantasy. In reality, this is a truth. Uh, affirmed countless times by kingdoms in this world. Truth is that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Power corrupts. Observation that a person's sense of morality, justice, righteousness, lessens as his or her power increases. That statement was made by a British historian, Lord Acton, of the late 19th century. And it's proven to be true to this day. What characterizes the history of man is the corrupted leaders who are blinded by their power and might. And this has been affirmed throughout history. Religious, secular leaders throughout the world affirm that power corrupts. Except for one king, and that is the king of God's kingdom. Jesus Christ, Jesus, the King of God's kingdom, is perfectly holy. In Luke 23, 4, Pontius Pilate said, I find no guilt in him. 23, 14, the Gospel of Luke again, I do not find him guilty of any of the charges that you have brought against him. John's Gospel says as well, Verse 38, he told them, I find no guilt in him. The writer of the scriptures affirm again and again the holiness, the perfection, the purity of our Lord. Hebrews 7.26, again, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, our King. As a righteous king. The second difference is that the earthly kingdom's reign is an illusion. The earthly kingdom's reign is an illusion. The leaders of Israel brought Jesus to Pontius Pilate in the middle of the night so that when the mass of people who are there in Jerusalem for Passover wake up next morning and find uh, their Messiah their uh, beloved king crucified on the cross, that they would blame the Roman government. They would blame this Gentile nation. So they uh, ensnared Judas to betray Christ in the middle of the night. They brought him in an unjust, they charged him in an unjust trial, accused him, the charges stuck in that Jewish court, 
brought them to Pontius Pilate, their plan, the conspiracy is coming together, and they think they are in control. Their plan is coming to fruition without, without any difficulty. But their authority, their sovereignty is an illusion. The reality is that the reign and authority of Jesus Christ is absolute. Pilate said to them, verse 31, Take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. If he is accused of blasphemy, if he is accused of false teaching or, or, or being a false leader, you try him and you punish him. Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And here John comments, This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Death by crucifixion was not chosen by the Jewish leaders. It was chosen by God. In the Old Testament, Psalm 22 records that prophecy. They have pierced my hands and my feet. The bronze serpent raised up during the time of the wilderness points to this prophecy being fulfilled by Christ Himself being raised up above the heavens so that anyone who might look to Him might be saved. John chapter 3. In Luke 18, our Lord specifically outlined um, this prophecy, declared this prophecy. Luke 18.32, He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. After flogging Him, they will kill Him. On the third day, He will rise. Luke 24, verse 7, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. On the third day, He will rise. It's incredible. The one who is in control is Jesus Christ. The man with his hands bound behind him, the man whose face was struck by a soldier, the man who was facing impending execution on the cross from a human perspective, he is utterly powerless, without control. But the truth is, he is the one who is in control. He is the one who was in charge. The authority of these pagan leaders is only an illusion. Our Lord's control, our Lord's power is absolute. Third difference is that the earthly kingdom's focus is a false external righteousness. Remember verse 28, I mean consider just how blind they are. They will not enter into Pilate's quarters, Pilate's palace because they will be defiled religiously defiled from eating the Passover feast and so for external righteous sake for their religious tradition and laws they will not enter all the while they are railroading an innocent man to execution they have conspired to murder Jesus Christ all the while carrying out the sinister plan they want to uh but a pretense of external righteousness. So they took care to guard themselves against what they consider to be ceremonial uh, defilement. A proof of Christ's indictment against them in Matthew 23, 27. Our Lord saw through their veneer, saw through their external righteousness, their corruption of the heart when he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you are hypocrites. The Greek word, you are uh, 
You're actors. You're wearing a mask. It's all an act. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And this applies not just to Judaism, but all false religion, all religion apart from Christianity, all religion apart from faith in Jesus Christ and His righteousness. It's all external. It's all a show. It's all for men to see. There is no true spiritual righteousness in all the religions of this world. Christ's kingdom's focus is a true internal righteousness. Verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my servants would be fighting. We would be fighting for a physical victory, external victory. But my kingdom is a spiritual kingdom that reigns in the hearts of men, promoting not war, promoting righteousness, love, forgiveness of sins, liberation from the bondage of our enemy, which is not a human kingdom, which is sin and death. Colossians 1, 12-14, He has delivered us from the kingdom, the domain of darkness, and transferred us the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. Fourth difference, we covered this last week, the power of the earthly kingdom is the sword. They rule through physical force, violence, intimidation. We saw this with the Christian convert in Afghanistan, Abdul Rahman. I think after service, someone told me that uh, he was released and because they considered him mentally insane, in their mindset, anyone who would uh, die for Christianity must be insane. He must be a fool, must be crazy, and he would risk his life for, for such foolishness. And he stood his ground, and he was, this week, pulled out of that country because uh, outside even the legal court system, the people were so angry that his death was a foregone conclusion if he stayed in that country whether it's secular uh, government or whether it's a religious system, they rule by the sword, rule through intimidation, through violence, but not Jesus Christ. The power of our Lord's kingdom is the truth. Is the truth. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. We do not wage war as the world does. We demolish arguments, every pretension that sets itself up against the, the Lordship of Christ. And so Christ came armed with His only weapon, which is the truth. So in that instance, as He dialogues with Pilate, He thinks back to His incarnation. He thinks back to the mission that the Father had given to Him. He thinks back to the inner Trinitarian covenant that they've made before the creation of the world where He would come and one of the purposes would be to bring truth, to bring the gospel, to testify to the world that we have sinned against the Holy God. 
that only judgment and condemnation awaits us. To reveal to us our utter need of a Redeemer. To tell us the truth about the nature of holiness and about His sacrifice on the cross and how He is the only way for the forgiveness of our sins. That's why He came. He came not to assert power, not to bring together an army, not to subdue nations in battle. It was simply to present truth to men and to exercise dominion by truth and truth alone. Those are the four differences we covered last week. Let's go to Roman numeral number five. Look at the fifth difference. The people of the earthly kingdom are driven by fear. Are driven by fear. Let me defend this point to all of you biblically. That people of this world, what drives them to oppose Christ, what drives them to sin, what drives them to cling on to sin and deny Christ, is fear. One of the basic emotions of man. Fear, worry, terror, fright, paranoia. It is a form of suffering. And this is what enslaves men to the kingdom of this world. We see this power and influence of this fear in the enemies of Christ. Fear is what motivates and drives their hatred and opposition to Christ. It looks like Christ is enslaved and they are free. In fact, the opposite is true. Christ is free and they are enslaved. They are in shackles, enslaved to fear. I want to present to you three principal characters from John's Gospel and hope to defend that the common motive for all these characters is that of fear. Pontius Pilate, the Jewish leaders, and the Jewish people. They are united by their opposition to Christ and united by their motivation. United by what drives them, that of fear. Each... Um, each group, each character represents a group of people in the kingdom of this world. Pontius Pilate represents the Gentile world. Those without the law of God. Go to verse um, 38. During their brief dialogue, our Lord mentions truth. Pilate's response has an air of arrogance and pride as he says, verse 38, what is truth? The Gentile world Truth is irrelevant. Truth is relative. It is subjective. It's unknowable. For Pilate, it's absurd that Jesus would talk about testifying to the truth. What is truth? It's irrelevant. It's unknowable. And then in verse 38b, second part of verse 38, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. I'll stop right there. Pilate, that's the truth. What are you talking about? You know, in one sentence you say, what is truth? There is no truth. It doesn't exist. It's arbitrary. And he turns around and he tells the people, I find no guilt in him. 
That's truth. There is no guilt in Christ. He is righteous. He is innocent of all the charges uh, uh, labeled against Him. He has committed no crime worthy of any punishment, let alone, above all, no crime worthy of death by the cross. Pilate, you have just spoken the truth. You're the governor of Judea, a ruler representing the most powerful nation at that time. You have the authority of Rome behind you. You have the mighty force of Roman's unrivaled army behind you. You have spoken the truth. Stand by it. But he will not. He does not. Why would he not? I mean, he represents the Roman government, Roman army over a group of people that has been that he's ruling, oppressing over. Yet he will not stand by the truth. We find the answer in verse 12 of chapter 19. He tried to release Christ. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. They were blackmailing him. They knew that Tiberius was not happy with Pontius Pilate's leadership in this land of Judea. That he made a lot of mistakes in his leadership and he was in a precarious position in terms of his authority and power, his position, his job. And so they were saying, we know your weakness. If you release Jesus, we're going to go to your boss, to Caesar, and tell him you're not on his side. In Matthew's Gospel, these Jewish leaders say, we have no king but Caesar. We are his friends. We follow his leadership. What about you? Where will you stand? If you will stand with the truth and release Christ, you are not a friend of Caesar. You are opposing him. They are blackmailing him. And here is Pilate. He is afraid. He is afraid of losing his, his authority, his power, his job. So what is driving him? It's not truth. It's not what is right. Self-preservation. Fear is driving him. So who has power? Who is free? Our Lord, who has submitted himself to please the Father and joyfully went to the cross? Or Pontius Pilate? He has all the external declaration of freedom and yet he is enslaved by fear. It's driving him to go against what he knows to be true and sends Christ to be crucified. Second group representing um, the Jewish religious system are the Jewish leaders, representing all the leaders of, of, of religion throughout the world. Second group is the Jewish leaders. Um, now when John says the Jews, look at verse eight, chapter 18, 31, the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. John is not talking about all the Jews of Israel. Right? In John 12, when Christ entered into Jerusalem, seated on a donkey, they welcomed him. They sang, Hosanna, save us now, son of David. They called out to him as the Messiah. The mass of people were open, wanting to embrace our Lord. But when John says the Jews here, he's talking about the Jewish leaders. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the members of the Sanhedrin. 
these men who are hostile to Christ, who are carrying out this conspiracy against the Lord. Now, what is driving them? What is motivating them to murder Christ? Well, we find one of their key central motivations, key motivations in John 11.45. If you will turn with me to John 11.45. This um, passage should be somewhat familiar to most of you. John 11 is a passage uh, that records our Lord's most public miracle. His most spectacular miracle of raising his friend Lazarus from the grave after he had been dead for four days. His flesh is rot, rotting and you can tell, people there that can tell because of the smell. And yet publicly he calls him out from the grave and Lazarus who was dead is resuscitated. It's not resurrection, it's resuscitation because Lazarus will die again. But nonetheless, he's given life again. Such a public, powerful miracle. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore even the leaders, men like uh, Joseph, men like Nicodemus, seeing what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees, told them what Jesus had done. The chief priests, Pharisees, gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. What? What a dumb question. Right? This man performs many signs. The question is, how shall we, we repent? Right? Who's going to be the first to repent? Who should be the first to follow him? That's the question. He performs many signs. Nicodemus comes to Christ at night. Rabbi, we know you are from God because no man can do these signs if God were not with him. We all know you're from God. And, if, and such a thing has never happened in Israel. Raising someone who's been dead for four days. He performs many signs. The question is, how shall we repent? Not, what shall we do with him? But that is the question. But it is a marvelous admission by these men. Even our Lord's worst enemies confess. Our Lord performed many miracles. They cannot deny the genuineness of these miracles. Could not deny it. But the question is, what shall we do? Because, verse 48, and here is the fear. Here is the fear that drives them. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. His followers will increase. Influence strengthened. Instead of believing in us, instead of coming to the temple, instead of buying our animal, animals and exchanging in our, in our uh, concession stands, instead of coming to us, as authorities, they will follow Him. Everyone will follow Jesus. The second fear, Romans will come and take away our place. Our positions of authority, our lucrative business, our power will be taken away from us and they will take away our nation. Their concern was not truth. You see the, the, the faulty reasoning I mean, just, just irrational, evil, wicked logic that is going on here. He raised a man from the grave. No one performs miracles as him. He is Christ, the promised one, the Messiah. We must repent and submit to his authority. Their response is, 
verse 53, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. From that day on, they conspired to kill him. They were willfully blind to the truth. They were blind to God's promise being fulfilled. I mean, the Old Testament. They had memorized the Torah. They had memorized the Pentateuch. They knew the prophecies. It was right before them and they willfully closed their eyes. Why? Because of fear. Fear of what it means to follow Christ. The final group is... uh, you know, mom and dad of this blind man in John chapter 9. If you would turn there, John chapter 9. The third group, these parents, they represent religious people who are abused, oppressed, ensnared by false religion throughout the world. Chapter 9, 18. The Jews did not believe, the Jewish leaders again, did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. They thought it was a scam. They thought it was just, you know, all an act. A sleight of hand trick, a magician's trick that our Lord was doing to gain followers. They did not believe it until they called the parents of the man who received the sight and asked him, Is this your son? Who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son. And we know he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. Why would would they pass the buck like this? They knew it was Jesus who healed healed their son. Verse 22, His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. These parents denied the truth. They claim ignorance. They blatantly lie before their own son all because of fear. They feared the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of Israel, because they had agreed and declared that if any man confessed that Jesus was the Christ, was the Messiah, he would be put out of the synagogue. A technical word. It means to be unsynagogued put out of the assembly of the Jewish people. The synagogue had an important, prominent place for Jews during this time, even today. It was a place where they met for fellowship and for everything else, for even financial transaction. It was your uh, social gathering place. If you got unsynagogued, that means you are cut off from the life of Israel, no social relationships at all. You are cast off from family, cast off from relatives, cast off from all social interactions with fellow Jews. You will be utterly isolated to yourself. There were three levels of being unsynagogued. Level one was you were cast off for 7 to 30 days. So after that period, you can come back to the synagogue. Level two, if you did something really bad, you were unsynagogued for 30 days and over depending on um, what you've committed. The worst kind of 
being on synagogue was a level three uh, on synagogue. Right? This was permanent. For the rest of your life, you were cast out from the nation of Israel. And this is what the Jewish leader said. If you profess faith in Christ, Jesus as the Messiah, you will be permanently cast off from the nation of Israel. And so these parents went against the truth that they knew that Jesus healed their son. Why? Because of the leaders of their religion. Because of fear. Pontius Pilate, these Jewish leaders, and the Jewish people represent the citizens of the earthly kingdom. They are driven by fear. Reminded me, last summer I was talking to a, 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 a young, young woman in the Czech Republic. She was a, a young believer. She just recently professed faith in Christ. She was telling me she believes in Christ, but she's afraid. She's afraid to follow Christ because of what it would mean, what it means to follow Christ. She fears her rejection from family, rejection from friends and from her society. By following Christ, she'll be an outcast among her friends in her world. Thinking about that, I remember my testimony. I remember that was one of my principal fears in following Christ. What I experienced, what I felt was fear. If I follow Christ, what does this mean? Trusting in Christ. I was afraid of being rejected by family, friends, and this world. And the Bible tells us, let me defend this, the opposite of faith is not unbelief. The opposite of faith is fear. Opposite of faith is fear. Now, this has been very helpful for me in studying the Gospel of John. The contrast that the writer presents. In John 12, remember uh, our fear of man sermon? Right? How people are con- constrained by fear of man. People don't evangelize. People don't live for the truth. They, they live to please others please family, please the world, and that, that enslaves them to, to live a certain way. And we, looked, and we studied how the opposite of fear of man is, you guys remember what that is? Right? Come on, encourage me, brothers and sisters, right? <laughs> the opposite of fear of man is love, right? It's not boldness, it's not courage. Opposite of fear is love. So the illustration is a mom, afraid of swimming, afraid of the water, sees her child drowning in rushing water. She jumps in to save her child. Why? Because she's brave? She's courageous? No. Because she loves her child. So opposite of fear of man, opposite of fear is love. And then with the John 13, our Lord washed in the feet of the disciples. And we looked at the opposite of, of, of love is not hatred. Opposite of love is selfishness. I remember we did a whole study sermon series. What keeps us from loving one another and washing one another's feet is our self-centeredness. It's our selfishness. That's what... So how do we fight our, our difficulty in loving others? Kill selfishness. Right? That's helpful, right? Again, it's helpful here from John 18 
that opposite of faith is not unbelief. All of us believe. All of us trust in Christ. But why do we struggle with faith? We struggle with fear. Because fear is the opposite of faith. Anxiety opposes faith. Because anxiety, worry, fear, we're telling God He's not worthy of our trust. We're telling God He's not powerful enough. In our hearts we're saying the Bible is not true. We're saying God doesn't care, God doesn't know. Lack of faith produces fear. And fear wages a war against our faith. I mean... John 15.1, the word of the Lord came to Abraham and he said, do not be afraid. Why? Abraham, trust in me. Don't be afraid because your fear is telling you to go back home. Telling you to forget about this land where you do not know and believing in Yahweh. Your fear is saying, go back home. Do not be afraid. Trust in me. Joshua 8.1, God said to Joshua, do not be afraid. Jeremiah 1.8, God told Jeremiah, do not be afraid of them. He's saying, just trust in me, Jeremiah. John 12.15, O daughters of Zion, see your king is coming. Seated on a donkey's colt, do not be afraid. Another way of saying, trust in Christ. John 14.27, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Matthew 13.22, The seed that fell among thorns is the man who hears the word and he believes in the word, but the worries of of life choke it, make it unfruitful. Anxieties of this life choke the word and makes it unfruitful. Remember Matthew 14, 27, Christ comes walking on water to the boat in the midst of a storm and he says, Brothers, do not be afraid. Matthew 28, 5, after His resurrection, He tells the women, do not be afraid. 28, 10, Jesus said to them, do not fear. Perhaps, best illustration is our Lord in Gethsemane. When He is, um, He has every reason to be deeply anxious. He falls on His face, He falls on the ground, Mark 14.36 and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. He is not afraid. He is trusting and trusting himself and trusting in the Father. All things are possible for you. So this world, the people in the world, they're blind to the truth. They don't stand by the truth. They can't know the truth because their lives are dominated by fear. Implication for us that as Christians we have two options as well. We can live by faith or live by fear. We can choose to live by trusting in God's Word or we can live by trusting in our emotions our worries, our anxieties, our thoughts, our fears. It's one or the other. Either we live by 
faith in Christ or we live like the world where we decide and live according to the fears that we have because of our sinfulness. The people of the earthly kingdom are driven by fear. Look at this. The people of Christ's kingdom are driven by faith in the truth. We are driven by faith in the truth. Faith in the truth of Christ is so much more powerful than the fears that drive the world. Faith overcomes fear. Turn with me to Hebrews 11. The hall of fame of faith. The hall of fame of faith. And we'll look at how these uh, men and women, because they believed in Christ, believed in God, they overcame fear. Hebrews chapter 11, let's go down to verse 7. By, no, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. In holy fear, God-centered fear. His fear of God was greater than the fear of his neighbors. Their, their mocking of him, their ridicule, their persecution, their rejection. His fear of God was greater than the fear of this world. Verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going. He was unafraid. He was driven by faith in God. Not fear of not knowing where you are going. Go down to verse 27, talking about Moses. This is more direct. By faith, he left Egypt. Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. He was not driven by fear of the king, fear of the king's anger, but he was driven by faith in God. Verse 32 through 40. This is, uh, these are, uh, sources of fear for so many of us, so, so, so many in the world. And yet these um, believers conquered their fears by faith. Right. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, they stopped the mouths of lions, they quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. They weren't afraid. They trusted in God. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of this of the earth, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, 
since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They conquered all these things, faced all their fears, and lived triumphantly, because people of God's kingdom are driven not by fear, but are driven by faith in the truth of Jesus Christ. How awesome is that? Our Lord even continues. As real as fear, fear is to the people of the world, truth is even a greater reality to the people of God's kingdom. Does that make sense? People in the world, fear is a reality. I mean, it's, it's powerful. It, it dominates their, their lives, their thinking, their decisions. Well, for believers, truth has that same influence and power in our lives. Verse 37, Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Listens to my voice. If you are of the truth, if you are a citizen of God's kingdom, you listen. And that listen is not just hearing, but a hearing with obedience. You obey the voice of Jesus Christ. You listen to, you attend to the doctrines, commandments of God. Evidence of true piety. John 8.47 Whoever is of God hears the words of God. John 10.27 My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. They are my sheep. Because they are my sheep, they hear my voice. They hear my voice, therefore they follow me. That's how powerful truth is in a believer's heart, believer's life. They recognize Christ's voice and they listen and they obey and they follow. First John 4, 6 We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. That's why for believers here, the Word of God is so powerful. We come to church, we hear some man stand behind the pulpit and just teach the Bible. To a non-believer, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. It's not powerful. There's no attraction. There's no beauty. There is no movement of the heart. But for believers... As the Word of God is studied and taught, explained, we hear the voice of our Master. And there's a movement of our affections towards this truth. And we are transformed by it. And we seek to obey the truth of God's Word. And we seek to live lives of obedience. Whoever knows God listens to God's Word. Whoever is not from God does not listen to God's word. The people of the earthly kingdom are driven by fear. People of Christ's kingdom are driven by faith in the truth. Two more. The people of the earthly kingdom exist to suppress the truth. I don't want to belabor this point. Romans 1.18 The wrath 
wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. So, the people of this worldly kingdom, earthly kingdom, they, everything they do suppresses the truth. That's their purpose in life. To deny the truth and to suppress the truth. People of Christ's kingdom, we exist to testify the truth. To testify the truth. Our Lord said here, this is the purpose, one of the purposes of, of His incarnation. He came to testify the truth and as followers of Christ, therefore what is our purpose in life? Why are we here? Why do we exist? What is our calling in life? To give testimony. To testify to the gospel of Christ. To declare that Jesus is the Son of God. That He is the promised Messiah. That He is the Redeemer. That He is the King. There is forgiveness in Him and He is returning in all His glory. Acts 1.8 You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of and to the end of the earth. That is why I was talking to a brother and he was part of ET and he's going out to the malls and he was shocked at how open people are to the gospel and the joy of sharing the gospel. Why? Why is there such joy when we share the gospel? Because that's our purpose. That is why we're here. And when we are, are, are fulfilling God's mandate for us, there is a spiritual joy had the opportunity this week to share the gospel, the whole gospel, to a guy who you know, plays for the Canadian Football League out here in Orange County, uh, training in off-season, to share the, share the gospel. And as I was sharing, man, it's joy. That's a thrill. I was excited. Why? Because I know that's why I'm here. That's why we're here. That's why Christ came. That was His, that was his example for us. So while the world does everything they can to suppress the truth by their unrighteousness or by the sword, we do everything we can to bring forth the light of the gospel. To bring it to the forefront of our conversation. The forefront of our lives. Because that is why we're here. And finally, the people of the earthly kingdom seek to follow anyone but Jesus Christ seek to follow anyone by Jesus Christ. That's what unites them. They'll follow anyone, anything, except for Christ. Pilate went out to them in verse 39. There's a custom during Passover. The benevolence of the Roman government, they release one prisoner. Do you want me to release this Jesus of Nazareth to you? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. John tells us, Barabbas was a robber. Matthew tells us in 27.16 he was a notorious prisoner. Luke 23.19 Luke tells us that he was in prison for an insurrection that he started and for murder. Mark 15.7 tells us he was a murderer and the Jews demanded what Pilate least expected. He expected these people to ask for Jesus to be released. Instead, they asked for Barabbas now why? Was there anything virtuous about Barabbas? Anything worthy of him being released? No. What, what qualified Barabbas was that he wasn't Jesus. 
He wasn't Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's why they chose Barabbas. It could have been anyone. And yet, they chose, and so they chose him. People of the earthly kingdom will, will want anyone but Christ. The people of God's kingdom seek to follow Christ and Christ alone. We want to follow Christ alone. We don't want to follow anyone else. We don't want to follow a church. We don't want to follow an ideology. We don't want to follow rules, traditions, and laws. We don't want to follow councils or creeds. We don't want to follow people or personalities. We follow Jesus Christ of the Scriptures to the cross of Jesus Christ. For the people of God's kingdom, our joy is to be with Christ even though He is going to Calvary. So we would rather suffer persecuted, be rejected by the world if we can be with Jesus Christ. Why? Because we are subjects of God's kingdom. We are people of God's kingdom. We would rather be with Christ going going to Calvary, going to the cross, than be in the world living in peace and luxury and comfort. Luke 14, 26 If anyone comes to me does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. That's the Calvary road. Verse 27, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Original hearers understood what he meant. The picture of a condemned criminal carrying his cross, the place of his execution, was a common sight. A condemned criminal was forced to carry his own cross. To take up the cross was a one-way journey. He would not return. The cross was an instrument of violent and painful execution. Christ is telling his disciples that if you want to follow him, they must be ready to face literal scorn and even eventual martyrdom, willingness to face suffering, shame, persecution, and even death because of the surpassing love, one surpassing love for Jesus Christ. That was what Apostle Paul said in Acts 20-24, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task Lord, Lord Jesus has given me. Acts 21.13 Why are you weeping, Paul said, and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.12 In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Revelation 12.11 They overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. This world promises so much. Promises us physical pleasures, luxuries, comfort, peace, you know, just prosperity. Our Lord promises suffering, persecution, possibly even martyrdom. But He only promises, promises also Himself. The people of God's kingdom follow Jesus Christ on this Calvary road. 
Are you on this road? You know, it's just living in America, just living in just, you know, pop Christianity and, you know, popular Christianity that promises everything. And oh, by the way, Jesus too, right? They promise good marriages, you know, good lives, health, wealth, promise, you know, self-esteem, good relationships. Oh, by the way, you get Jesus and eternal life on top of that. I'm afraid that such false teachings have seeped in to our mindset where we've lost sight of the cross and we're trying to seek self-fulfillment and oh yes, we'll take Jesus as well. We'll take Calvary. We'll take the cross with it. Are you on this road? Are you eagerly, are you purposefully denying yourself? Denying your identity? Denying who you are, denying your rights, denying your privileges. Are you taking up the cross every day, living as a dead person, crucified with Christ? You no longer live, but Christ lives in you. Are you seeking to no longer live for yourself? And are you seeking to so put the cross of Christ, the forefront of your life, that you would be rejected by this world. Let me close with Piper's quote where it says, What a tragic waste when people turn away from the Calvary road of love and suffering. What a tragic waste. All the riches of the glory of God in Christ are on that road. All the sweetest fellowship with Jesus is there. All the treasures of assurance, all the ecstasies of joy, all the clearest sightings of eternity, all the noblest camaraderie, all the humblest affections, all the most tender acts of forgiving kindness, all the deepest discoveries of God's Word are there. All the most earnest prayers, they are all on the Calvary road where Jesus walks with His people. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. On this road and this road alone, life is Christ and death is gain. Life on every other road is wasted. Just seated as you are, would you just close your eyes and ask yourself the simple question, what road are you on? Just seated as you are, just not shuffling paper, not putting anything away. We just keep your eyes fixed on the cross. And have you been deceived by the enemy? And have you gone to the other side? Have you, are you siding with the enemy, with the kingdom of this world? Have they deceived you, led you astray, where before you know it, you're on the other side of the line and you're Living for this world. Who are you living for? Which road are you on? Do you see? Do you care to see that the road of this world is waste? It's rubbish. Apart from Christ.
Well, Holy Father, we thank you for the awesome, beautiful, holy example of our Lord. Joy set before him, went to the cross, submitting himself fully to the Father. Lord, you have called us, you have saved us, adopted us into your family, into your kingdom. For Lord, have we strayed away from being loyal to our King? Have we been deceived by the cunning ways of our enemy? And now we are on His side and we are battling against You. Oh Lord, teach us or remind us of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Gospel is that we should no longer live for ourselves. That we would no longer be the main character of our life story. But that, our, that we live to exalt You, to give glory to You, and give testimony of Your sovereign grace. Oh Lord, we live in a world, in a Christian world, uh, that is so compromised and deceptive. Oh Lord, would you uh, rescue us and set us free by your truth. That we would not live according to our fears, but live according to our faith in Christ. Lord, would you, uh, by the cross of Christ, the blazing center of the glory of God, liberate and transform many hearts today. Liberate us from selfish, self-centered, self-indulgent living in this world. Cause us and constrain us to live for you. In your precious name we pray.